0: From the Center for Archival Collections at Bowling Green State University Libraries, this is Archival Encounters, where archives come alive and past voices meet our present moment. The Center for Archival Collections, or the CAC, collects, preserves, and provides public access to unique historical records documenting BGSU, the Northwest Ohio region, the Great Lakes, and National Student Affairs, as well as an extensive rare book collection. I'm CAC archivist Nick Pavlik, and in this podcast series, we're sharing some of the many important stories that our archival collections have to tell. We're especially focusing on oral histories, recorded personal remembrances of historical and biographical events as told by those who lived them, providing living eyewitness accounts you likely won't find in the history books. September 1st,
1: 1939. These are today's main events. Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many times. I therefore resolve to speak to Poland in the same language in which Poland has addressed us for such a long time. We shall fight this war for Poland, for the sanctity of our homes, for their right to maintain our faith, and our tradition. From now on, bomb will be met by bomb. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. Consequently, this country is at war with Germany. This morning, the United States was awakened by the voice of Prime Minister Chamberlain of England declaring that a state of war existed between that country and Germany. General
2: mobilization has been ordered in Britain and France. So
1: swiftly followed development after development in this history-making day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States... When peace has been broken anywhere, the peace of all countries everywhere is in danger.
0: Under Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany invades Poland, setting into motion the catastrophic events of World War II. Over six long and brutal years, the Allied powers, consisting principally of the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and eventually the United States, would engage the Axis powers, consisting principally of Nazi Germany, the Kingdom of Italy, and the Empire of Japan, in a series of relentless and bloody conflicts that would truly engulf nearly the entire world. Before the conclusion of the war in Europe and the Pacific, marked by the surrender of Germany in May of 1945 and the surrender of Japan in September of 1945, the war would result in the deaths of nearly 80 million military personnel and civilians throughout the world, including the deaths of the nearly 6 million Jews who were systematically murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust, and would introduce the world to the horror of nuclear weapons. The aftermath of the war would bring about the irrevocable transformation of the political world order. Over a half-century after the war, at Bowling Green State University's Department of History, Dr. Walter Grunden and Dr. Catherine Brown began teaching History 303, a course on World War II in which students were encouraged to undertake the special optional assignment of conducting an oral history interview with a World War II veteran. For those students who chose to take on the assignment, the veteran they interviewed was often a family member, such as a grandparent or a great-uncle or aunt or it was a veteran with whom they had been connected through one of the local veterans' organizations here in Northwest Ohio. By 2004, History 303 students had conducted over 100 oral histories with veterans of the war, and the collection of History 303 oral histories was donated to the CAC so it could be preserved and made accessible to the public. Today, thanks to a grant awarded to the CAC in 2018 by the Ohio History Connections Ohio History Fund, the entirety of the History 303 Veteran Oral History Collection has been digitized and made freely available online. In this three-part episode, we'll be recounting several of the major events of World War II, focusing on the role of the United States with History 303 instructor Dr. Walter Grunden as our guide. Along the way, we'll hear from six veterans from Northwest Ohio who were interviewed by BGSU students for History 303 in the early 2000s, and we'll learn how their experiences of the war are both unique and also reflective of the experiences of millions of ordinary Americans who served in the global fight against fascism. And just a note to listeners, this episode features some explicit language and graphic descriptions of military combat. Let's get introduced to our veterans. Today is December 12th. It is around noon right now of the year 2000. My name is Jason Anthony Gray. I'm a senior at BGSU, and I'm here with John
3: Andritz at his house in Rossford, Ohio, just south of Toledo. This is Derek Damon
4: for History 303, Professor Walter Grunden, fall semester 2003. I'm interviewing John Damon, retired technician, sergeant, fourth grade, US Army, December 9, 2003.
2: This is Josh Oyer, History 303, Dr. Catherine Brown, summer 2002 I'm interviewing Gordon Donnick he was a corporal in the United States Army Company A 33rd Infantry of the 84th Infantry Division
5: Scott Vermillion history 303 Dr. Katherine Brown fall 2001 interview with Ali Schrader retired from the United States Navy was a seaman first class in resting gear and November 29th 2001
3: Alexis Osborne, History 303, Professor Walter Grundin, Fall 2003. Interview with Pete Simon, retired T 5 Corporal, December 5th, 2003.
4: Matt Gambert, History 303, History of World War II. Dr. Catherine Brown, Spring of 2001. The following is an interview with retired Major Jim Spencer on April 2nd, of 2001. Spencer served World War II in the Southwest Pacific with the 148th Infantry of the National Guard from 1941 until 1945. I mean, that class, you know, World War II is a very popular class, and it always fills.
0: And that's Dr. Walter Grunden.
4: I teach in the Department of History here at Bowling Green State University. My major area of expertise, if you will, is modern Japanese history but I also study uh, modern China, East Asia more broadly. My research specialization is in uh, advanced weaponry of World War II and the Cold War era, and particularly what the Japanese were working on in, in World War II in terms of advanced weaponry. With the History 303 course, Dr.
0: Grunden wanted to provide students with an enriched understanding of World War II that could really only
4: be provided by someone who was there. My objective getting the students out to do these interviews was t- to get as close to the firsthand hand experience as they could. It's one thing you read about World War II in a textbook. It's another thing you get some supposed expert like myself standing in front of a class and talking about the war and so forth. But none of us were there. None of us had that experience. I wanted them to have the opportunity to sit down across from someone who's actually there, experienced it, whatever their experience was, right? Part of the value of this is just getting the stories of the everyday, more common soldier, sailor, airmen, and even some of the, the women who may have been in the wax or the waves and to capture their stories from the ground up. This is always the, the danger of history. Of course, the victors write the history and then the, the high command. There's an official narrative that gets created about the war. And, you know, we learned that that's that's the official story that we learned K through 12 or in college. But there is so much more to the story. And you won't get to that unless you talk to these folks who were literally in the foxholes, literally on the ships, literally on the front lines. And some of the stories they have to tell, as you know, are incredible. I mean, it just really fascinating.
0: Do you recall how the students described their experiences of having done the oral histories and whether their understanding of the war changed as a result of the opportunity to do these
4: interviews? I think it did change their perspective on the war because, again, I, th- I think it's, it, it helped them to personalize the war instead of it just being from a dry history textbook or from one of my lectures. They actually sat down with somebody who was there And they could see the emotion of the memory and the thoughts. And and they would tell them things, it's not in the textbook, it's not in my lecture. And they get that one-on-one experience with a veteran. So I think it personalized the war for them and it made it more real.
0: One of the first questions the students typically asked veterans was about what life was like for them before the war and how much they really knew about the war when it first began, when the United States was pledging to remain neutral.
4: You know, I think it all depended a lot on who you were, what kind of job you had, where you lived. I think it had a lot to do with one's level of education or class and occupation.
0: For Jim Spencer of Bowling Green, the bleak economic circumstances of the Great Depression had led him to look to the military as the best option for earning a steady income. So at the outset of the war, he was already serving in the National Guard and unexpectedly found himself promoted to the rank of corporal and ready to train new recruits should the U.S. need to suddenly begin drafting young men into service.
6: The Depression was a, was a bad time for me. I was born before the Depression, grew up during the Depression. The military interested me primarily because it paid a little bit, you know. I got mixed up with the National Guard here in Bowling Green with the 148th Infantry in 1937 in October, and my enlistment was about to run out, poor kid, no money, had to do something, and I re-enlisted in the National Guard, and at that time in 1939, you know, it wasn't generally known publicly, but the nation was preparing for war at that time, and so I re-enlisted in the National Guard, Uh, I was a buck-ass private, and because they were getting ready for the draft, we didn't know it at that time, but the draft occurred shortly thereafter, which meant that the unit was going to expand. And so they needed NCOs, and uh, they decided I'd make a good corporal, so I sewed the stripes on.
0: For others, like Ali Schrader of Bell Center and Pete Simon of Custer, who had spent their entire lives in rural northwest Ohio, the war seemed a distant concern.
5: Well, I was born in Hardin County, uh, lived on a farm all my life, and then I went to work at a little factory in Bell Center, which is called the sugar plant, which made milk sugar out of milk. And uh, that's where I made my money when I was a schoolboy at home.
3: What were you doing before you went to service? I was a farmer. I was working with my dad, that's where I grew up there in Custer, Ohio, about 15 miles west of Bowling Green. I worked in a garage in the wintertime, and in the summertime, I helped my dad there on the farm.
4: So I think your typical person in Bowling Green, for example, or some resident in Wood County, a farmer somewhere, they're probably not very tuned in to what's going on in Europe. Pacific is even, could be the moon, you know, for as far as they're concerned. But I think that people in the cities, certainly people in the capital, were, were more attuned to international affairs. They had foreign investments, after all, right? And so they were concerned about, well, okay, how is what Hitler is doing going to affect my stock portfolio with IBM or something, right? So in that regard, maybe you could say the elites of the U.S. were more in tune to what was going on in Europe and in Asia. Another reason most Northwest Ohioans would
0: have known comparatively little about the war was because the news media environment of the period was vastly limited compared to that of today, especially for those living in the rural heartland.
4: We have to remember that in 1941, although television technology had been invented, it was around, it was not widely available, it was not commercialized at this point. So there were no televisions, really, to speak of. Most homes, people got their news from the, the radio or newspapers, and so there was a very sort of a very limited media venue through, through which they could get their information. So we think about how media can be manipulated today. Just think about how easy it would have been to control the narrative and control the message if you control radio and the newspapers. And yes, there are many newspapers and national newspapers, local newspapers, city newspapers, and so forth. But most of them are getting information from the the, the main wire sources, like the UPI or AP or something like that. So we have to remember the media is very different. So for a lot of these people, they're they're not able to get information beyond what's in the radio or in the newspapers. Ali Schrader, for instance, remembers that when World War II began,
0: his family's primary means of accessing the news was through a battery-powered radio.
5: No television at that time, or at least we didn't have any television. and. If I remember right, we didn't have electric at that time and uh, all you had was radio and a lot of them was battery-operated radios. You, you weren't up on the news like you are today.
0: Today you live it, then you found out about it. And for many rural Americans, the information they were able to get about the war, along with the not-too-distant memory of American casualties in World War I, made it very clear that the war was not something they wanted the United States to become involved in.
4: Something we generally doesn't enter the mainstream narrative about World War II and thinking about it, what did the average American think about the circumstances? I think given World War I and the, the American experience in World War I, most Americans just didn't want anything to do with it.
5: There was a lot of
4: uh, discussion and a lot
5: of talk, a lot of worried about going into the war, uh, but uh, I don't think any the people weren't really upset about it. They were concerned, but I don't I don't remember anybody being really excited about the possibility of getting into war at that time. They 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 knew it was possible, but. They were hoping that Germany would get whipped
4: before we had to go help. Europe, who cares? It's their problem. You know, we had to go bail them out once before. We paid a heavy price for it. We don't need to go into something like that again. Hitler, who cares? I mean, you got Stalin. You know, which one's worse? Who knows, right? So let them work it out. Let them deal with it. Just leave us alone. And good to have two oceans as a buffer, right? So I think most people were just had that isolationist sentiment and just mostly wanted to be left alone. Hello NBC, this is K.J.U. in Honolulu, Hawaii. But that
0: all changed on Sunday, December 7th, 1941.
3: We have witnessed this morning the distant view
1: that brings people battle off Pearl Harbor and a severe bombing of Pearl Harbor by enemy planes, undoubtedly Japanese. The National Broadcasting Company presents H. V. board team of radio commentators, who today will analyze and interpret the day's startling news from the Pacific. Japan has made war upon the United States without declaring it. Here's a bulletin which has just come into the NBC newsroom in New York. Airplanes, presumably from aircraft carriers, have attacked the great. Pearl Harbor Naval Base on the island of Oahu, Japanese bombs killed at least five persons and injured many others, three seriously, in a surprise morning aerial attack today on Honolulu.
0: In the early morning hours in Honolulu, Hawaii, Japan, which had been militarily expanding its empire throughout the Pacific, launched a surprise attack on the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor. News of the attack gradually spread throughout the continental U.S., causing shock, confusion, and uncertainty.
4: So in a lot of these folks, when they first heard about Pearl Harbor, um, it was word of mouth. They'd just come out of church or they'd just come out of the theater or something and said, did you hear, did you hear? And this is how they heard about Pearl Harbor. We got a sudden jolt
5: and this was mouth to ear from everybody. Not, like I said, with no television,
0: it, it, things didn't travel as fast as they do now. John Andrick of Rossford and his wife, Anne, recall the moment they found out about the attack on Pearl Harbor. We came home from church that morning, yeah, right?
3: that afternoon, all around one o'clock we heard. And of. then
0: we
2: got the news on the radio that the Pearl Harbor was bombed. How, how did you learn uh, that the U.S. was in the war? Was that just because of after, Pearl Harbor? After, after President Roosevelt made his speech, you know.
5: Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, A date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of
2: the Empire of Japan.
4: Of course, everybody went to the radio as soon as possible and sat down in front of the radio and started tuning in. Just like we all did when 9-11 happened, we were all glued to the TV for the rest of the day or the rest of the week trying to figure out what was going on. They were glued to the radio in, in that regard as well. So it had an enormous impact. And keep in mind, this is not long after, you know, Orson Welles broadcast of uh, War of the Worlds, you know, and based on H.G. Wells, which in the 1930s and how that uh, led a, a, a minor panic across the U.S. Of the
1: creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray, all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own.
4: So I think that might have been fresh in some people's minds as well, as that okay, is this for real or not even? You know, what is really happening here? Is this Orson Welles punking us again, you know? (laughs) Temporary chaos and confusion over the Pearl
0: Harbor attacks also beset the armed forces in the continental U.S. Stationed at the time at Camp Shelby, Mississippi for his position in the National Guard, Jim Spencer recalls learning of the Pearl Harbor attacks at a rather inopportune moment and the chaotic response the attacks triggered at Camp Shelby.
6: I was on a date the young lady in Vicksburg, Mississippi when the Japanese decided to tear things up at Pearl Harbor. Uh-huh. So I all leave, passes, furloughs was canceled and all all of us were ordered back to, to camp, back to Camp Shelby. I got back to the unit. The place was in an uproar. All those GIs all had a rifle, but no ammunition. Everybody wanted ammunition. You'd have thought the Japanese were coming down the street <laughs> right there, Company the street right there. All the time getting, getting you things right now. <laughs> When
4: I left Vicksburg and the
6: young lady and I haven't seen her since.
4: (laughs) And remember, Hawaii was not yet a state, becomes a state in 1959. At that point, it's an American territory of trust, had been its own country, and we colonized it and so forth. And so probably a lot of Americans couldn't even find Hawaii on a map. But once the Japanese attacked, most people said, I gotta I gotta go enlist. I gotta I gotta do my part. It's my patriotic duty. This is my nation, my country, and you don't mess with us, right? So I think that really changed the attitude literally overnight. After the attack of Pearl Harbor, everybody got patriotic. Everybody was ready to
5: join the Navy or the Army or the service. The young boys were ready to go,
4: and the, uh, it, was a, it was a war effort then. And that's something the Japanese weren't counting on. They were really expecting the Americans to say, oh, we took a big hit, we'll come to the negotiating table, we'll draw up a treaty, we'll stay out of the the Central and and Western Pacific. That's what they're really counting on. We knock them out at Pearl Harbor, and then the Americans are gonna stay out of it because they don't have the stomach for war. They underestimated, terribly underestimated.
0: With resolve in the wake of the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, Americans confronted the grim reality that the United States could no longer be a neutral party in the war. On December 8th, the United States declared war on Japan. On December 11th, Japan's allies, Germany and Italy, declared war on the U.S. and the U.S. responded in kind with its own declaration of war against Germany and Italy. The United States was now fully a combatant in World War II and immediately began to mobilize its population for war.
5: And the beat of feet sounds over the land. Feet intent on training, on growing fit for whatever destiny holds ahead. Heroes, everyone. Heroes by the million. Men who abandon home and vocations that they may be ready to defend democracy if necessary. Sturdy of body, firm in spirit, Seamen, Marines, Soldiers, and Flyers. A huge civilian army joins in this great defense program. Rigid
1: rough work...
5: Across
0: the U.S., millions of young men and women rose in defense of their country and entered into the various branches of the military. Some, like Ali Schrader, rushed with determination to enlist as soon as they were eligible.
5: I joined the Navy, I think it was November of '44. I tried to enlist about three month ahead of that, but when I went for my physical, I chewed my fingernails. My fingernails were shorter than, and they wouldn't take me. They said, no, you're too nervous. He said, the only way we'll take you is if you come back in 30 days and you have fingernails, we will take you in the service. I come home, and I've never chewed my fingernails since then.
0: Others, like John Andrick, Pete Simon, and Gordon Domick of Wauseon, simply waited to inevitably be drafted into service. I was uh,
2: drafted May the 27th, 1942. And uh,
3: what branch did you join? Army, US Army. How old were you then? 22. Inducted into the service 15th of December, 1942. I was drafted from Wood County, Uh, there where Bowling Green is and placed in the entry and service in Toledo, Ohio. I was about uh, 20 years old.
2: I was drafted by the Fulton County, Ohio draft board in Wauseon and was inducted into the U.S. Army on June 1,
0: 1943. Once inducted into service, our veterans were sent off to basic training camps, mostly in the American South where they were prepared for the physical and mental demands of military service and developed lasting bonds with fellow servicemen from across the country.
4: When you talk to the veterans, so often what they will recall first off is basic training.
2: I was inducted at Camp Perry. I got my basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky.
1: We uh, took our basic training at Camp Robinson, Arkansas, close to Little Rock. I was
2: sent to Camp Fannin near Tyler, Texas, for infantry basic training.
5: I went to uh, Great Lakes Naval Station in uh,
3: Illinois. Took our basic training, started at Camp Hood, Texas.
6: Shelby, Mississippi, which is a wide open flat space full of brush and whatnot <laughs> and nothing but tents. Big pits dug in the ground for the tree with a wooden box put over it. I don't know whether you're familiar with those or not, but I have. <laughs>
1: the camaraderie of boot camp. We had six man huts, we called them. There were six guys in a building. They were just small buildings. And we had had a fallout every morning, in the evening.
4: We had to run a mile about every day. You know, running up that hill every day to build their physical fitness, but also mental fitness as well, the mental training.
2: The tough military training turned a soft high school student into a hardened young man. It was
5: strictly teaching you discipline. Uh, you knew you had things to do, you had certain
4: time to do it, and you best be on time. Having a drill instructor who is just an absolute, can I say son of a bitch? <laughs> 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 it isn't family friendly,
1: but Whenever anything went wrong, why, they kept us coming out, maybe until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and we had a fallout in, uh, in a rank, and the sergeant would dismiss us, and pretty soon he'd blow the whistle, and I had to fall out again until somebody come
4: up with, that did something wrong, you know. The relationships that they forged at that time, they'll never forget those people. They, they see them at reunions and uh, they stay in contact for decades after. Tony
2: Wachinski, yeah, Richieville, Pennsylvania. He calls about every, we talk to each other about every other week or something. We have a quarterly newspaper that keeps in contact with our buddies. Just recently I noticed on that paper a death of a member of my platoon. His nickname was Koi, and he always sent me a birthday card for he, too, remembered our first
4: day in combat. And the other thing is, is food just how bad the food was. (laughs) We ran out of food once, and we ate uh, cornbread and beans for
5: about three months. We ate that three times a day. That kind of, I don't eat beans
0: today. The conditions of basic training may have been harsh, but they were necessary to truly prepare young servicemen to meet the unforgiving realities of combat that awaited them in Europe and the Pacific.
2: Training for combat, is where service to our country really begins, in my view. Without adequate training and good equipment, victory is uncertain and much manpower is lost. An untrained division is going to have a lot more casualty than a well-trained, well-disciplined division.
0: The basic training our veterans received also differed depending on which branch of the armed
4: forces they had entered into. People were trained according to the needs of the different services. So uh, if you're going into the Navy, of course, you had to know how to swim. And if you didn't know how to swim, maybe, you know, they would make you a a Marine instead or something. But Navy always transported the Marines. If you absolutely couldn't swim, maybe you would, no pun intended, wash out. Maybe they would put you in the Army or something like that. But it all depended on the service that you'd either try to get into. Sometimes you could you could ask to go into a certain service, and maybe you would get that. Other times, maybe you would just be assigned a service. John Damon of Napoleon and Gordon Domick, both of whom
0: were drafted into the U.S. Army Infantry, recall some of the specific activities involved in basic training for infantrymen.
1: We had to take a rifle, go out to the rifle range wherever we went while we had a walk and uh, usually you had a full field pack with you. And we went out to the rifle range to shoot uh, targets.
2: We had to uh, take special training, uh, combat training, and I was shipped to Cape Claiborne, Louisiana. As an infantryman in the 84th Division, we trained in the hot and humid swamps of Louisiana and became a well-trained and cohesive combat unit.
4: But there are a lot of variables in in terms of not only what service one was in, but also what you ended up doing in that service. If you had certain skill set that you had to offer, that could also determine where you ended up. Like the one interview uh, we listened to.
0: Dr. Grunden's referencing Pete Simon's interview here.
4: The guy talks about how he was a mechanic, and he you know, worked on the farm, fixed the tractors, but in the wintertime when you couldn't farm, he worked in a, in a garage, and he fixed cars. So he ends up being in a tank corps, so he can fix tanks. You know, he's a mechanic, so that's a transferable skill.
3: Since I had worked uh, as a mechanic there in western Ohio in winter months, uh, the Army checks your record. And they found out that I that they needed some mechanics in the in a tank outfit so they uh, I was one of the picked pick to go on down to Camp Hood again I went to three months of schooling down there uh, to learn more about uh, mechanics working on tanks and so forth you take some training uh, on driving the tank uh, how to drive them in mountainous territory or through uh, mud or whatever it is and trying to let you know that a, a tank can get stuck too, the same as a vehicle. So make sure that you try to find the best ways, you know, driving the tank, so. And uh, then you want to be able to drive the tank so that you can uh, see that, so that if, the, if there's a target to fire at, so that you can line up so that your, the gunner can get a shot at the target, you know, so.
0: As Dr. Grundin notes, It's also important for us to remember that while many young Americans who went through basic training went on to engage in actual combat during the war, even more served in noncombatant positions that, while not on the front lines, were no less crucial to American military operations during the war.
4: Often when we think about World War II, the narrative almost always focuses on combat and those guys up front, but they were really, in terms of the vast numbers of people who served, they were actually smaller in number than all of the other people who worked behind the lines in support positions, right? To, to get, you know, working logistics, to get the equipment, to get the food, to get the water, get the ammo, everything up to these guys who are doing the combat. The vast majority of people who served were actually in these kind of support positions and not actually on the front lines. So, and we hear a little bit of that in these interviews, too, where— well, the one guy... Here, Dr. Grunden is referencing John Demon. He talks about how um, he was sworn in. He was inducted like 20 minutes before the war before ended.
0: <laughs> well, it was about 20
1: minutes before the war ended. I got sworn in.
4: So what did he end up doing in the war? Well, nothing really, but after the war, he restrung power lines across Germany. So um, fascinating in its own right, right? But right. those are the stories we don't hear. Again, which to me speaks to the value of oral history and doing these interviews and having these interviews because, again, it can personalize the war and we can understand it from the ground up.
0: While John Damon's service was dedicated to rebuilding projects after the war, our other veterans, John Andrick, Gordon Domic, Ali Schrader, Pete Simon, and Jim Spencer were sent at the height of the war into the European and Pacific theaters, where brutal battles of unimaginable intensity between Allied and Axis forces were raging on land, at sea, and in the air, and where they would all play their part in furthering the Allied military advance in some of the most decisive campaigns that helped determine the outcome of the war. Dr. Grundon's expert knowledge of the war provides crucial historical context for these campaigns and the experiences of our veterans within them.
4: Well, maybe we should start with what maybe most people today might know about the war, might think they know about the war, right? And how that comes to us. And that typically has come to uh, younger generations through Hollywood and what Hollywood has focused on or chosen to, to focus on.
0: And more often than not, That focus tends to be on the American involvement in Western Europe, beginning with the D-Day invasion of Normandy in June of 1944.
4: But I think Americans connect with that because that in sort of in the mainstream narrative is when many people really feel like America had arrived and we really got into the war. Well, of course, we were in Africa already, you know, invading Northern Africa and trying to push the Germans and the Italians back and... So long before D-Day, we were fighting in Africa, and we were fighting in Italy, took Sicily, tried to go up the boot and into Italy. And of course, we are in the Pacific right away. America
1: goes to war. Men of the Army, Navy and Marines, rear battlefronts on six continents to save the homes and ideals of free men from Axis domination.
0: Jim Spencer's 148th Infantry Regiment was sent into the Pacific in the spring of 1942 to confront Japanese forces that had by then seized control of vast amounts of territory in the Pacific and built up a defensive perimeter stretching from western Alaska to the Solomon Islands.
6: In short order, we were put aboard a troop train and I wound up in San Francisco in April of 1942, boarded a troop ship, uh, the Santa Lucia, Jesus Christ, what a boat, uh, goddamn scowl. It was later sunk in the North African campaign, and I wasn't a bit sorry. <laughs> and we sailed aboard it and, and into, the, into the Pacific. Of course, in those days, you didn't bother to tell you a, a damn thing that you didn't really need to know. All we knew was we was going into the Pacific.
0: While Spencer's regiment sailed into the Pacific, Allied forces led by the United States achieved two major victories against the Japanese that began to turn the tide of the war in the Pacific in the Allies' favor.
4: You have the battles of Coral Sea in which the Japanese lose one uh, carrier and another is damaged. And then Midway, in June 42, where they lost four aircraft carriers. And um, mi- Midway was a, a complete debacle for the Japanese because they didn't realize that we'd broken one of their military codes. And so we knew basically exactly where they were coming and what they were bringing with and were ready and, and prepared for it. Still a hell of a battle still um, very costly, but in the end they lost four aircraft carriers, which they could ill afford. And that pretty much, you know, it didn't quite break the back of the Imperial Japanese Navy at the time, but it was a huge setback they never recovered from. So from that point, Forward, they were always on the defensive in the Pacific.
0: In early June of 1942, Spencer's regiment landed at Fiji, where they began preparing defenses for an anticipated Japanese assault.
4: We
6: got into the harbor at Suva in the mm-hmm. Fiji Islands, and the next day, when it got daylight, we went around to a little place called, a little town on, on the island of Vita Levu called Nandi, got off the ship, went inland, and but still you start digging foxholes because the Japanese by this time had taken several islands. They owned the, the Solomons, they'd been in Burma, and, and they they figured that the Japanese were going to jump on the Fiji Islands. So we, we started to set up the defenses in the Fijis.
0: Spencer's regiment would play a critical role in what became known as the Allied Island Hopping Strategy in the South Pacific, which under the command of U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, was designed to isolate Japan's most heavily fortified islands while also drawing resources away from their defenses in the Central Pacific.
4: Admiral Nimitz, from the beginning, he wanted to go pretty much straight up the Central Pacific and take these small islands as forward air bases and bomb Japan as much as they could, soften them up, and then prepare for a a land invasion that they would they would land in Kyushu, the southernmost island, and then they would also hit Honshu, and try to drive on Tokyo. Now, that's the most direct route, and probably, you know, you might think it might have been the more simple of the objectives to to achieve in that regard. But if they had done that and only that, the Japanese could have fortified uh, much more strongly along the way and and made that strategic approach, very, very difficult, if not impossible. MacArthur, who had an affinity for the Philippines and the people of the Philippines, and it had been, you know, he was ordered to leave as the Japanese had invaded Philippines early in 42. You know, he said, I shall return, and he wanted to get back to the Philippines. And his idea was that we'd take a 2 prong approach, that we'd follow Nimitz's uh, strategic approach but also go into the Western Pacific, go island hopping through the the Western Pacific, and engage Japan, particularly like in the Solomons and uh, New Guinea, trying to bypass the most fortified islands and positions, go around them, take positions behind, disrupting Japanese supply lines and, and so forth, and then starve them out. So it became a battle of attrition along the way so that you would block them from invading Australia, which they were driving and intending to do. And again, to drain resources away or pull resources away from Japan's defensive perimeter in the Central Pacific.
0: In August of 1942, the Allies launched their first island-hopping offensive against the Japanese with the Battle of Guadalcanal, commencing the Allied campaign to take the Solomon Islands from the Japanese. Guadalcanal
6: Airport. The tiny patch of land for which Japan has sacrificed a fleet of warships and thousands of fighting men still bristles with United States bombers. For the forces that control Guadalcanal command the approaches to Australia, hold mastery of the skies over the vitally important Solomon Islands. Today, these land-based bombers are leading the way as the combined United States land, sea, and air offensive...
4: Guadalcanal, that's the first time that, that we actually retook land territory back from the Japanese, not just sea lanes and so forth, but territory. The Navy, along with MacArthur and a few other people, they decided to take Guadalcanal away
6: from the Japanese, because they had started a field, an airfield, on one end of the island called Henderson Field. And the Japanese didn't realize that uh, that the, the United States and their allies had the forces and the means necessary to jump on that island and give right. them a bad time. We kind of took them by surprise. I didn't do any fighting on Guadalcanal. I got there after the last shot had been fired. But anyway, we horsed around there on the island and done some additional training.
0: From Guadalcanal, Spencer's regiment then advanced further into the Solomon Islands.
6: Our next mission was headed for New Georgia, which is also an island in, in the Solomon group. The, uh, New Georgia had already been invaded. But the, the forces that were ashore needed a lot of help, and <clears throat> my division was selected to to help those people. So we got there at night. Boy, was that a <laughs> dark, you know, and no lights. But we got ashore and got, in, got into the fight and took the island away from the Japanese. And from there, we went back to Guadalcanal, cleaned the weapons, got a few replacements in for the men that we had killed and wounded, done some more training, got the regiment ready and the rest of the division, and decided to take Bougainville, which is also a part of the Solomon Islands. I believe it was on around the 5th of November that we got there, of 1943, on Bougainville. We went ashore. My company was on a, an outpost at the, where the uh, Laruma River emptied into the Pacific Ocean on Bougainville. And the Japanese had tried to make a send some reinforcements in down there, and and we had to wreck them. So they sent the company up there to, to establish an outpost, a patrol base. The Japanese had lost some some boat, their in, you know, invasion craft. They used to move troops around in those islands were were uh, foldable type craft, and they had some excellent. Uh, outboard engines and a friend of mine in the heavy weapons support platoon in the company I was with was a pretty fair mechanic and we got some of those engines had been left on shore in the boats so we finally got one of those big engines to run. Uh, We got one of those boats and got it unfolded and uh, put it in the ocean and hung that engine on it and run up and down to get our supplies and our ammunition and whatnot, while the, the rest of the division established the main line of resistance and tied in with another division and built an airfield on, on Bougainville. Hell, I was up there three, four months. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a couple of uh, bad fights on Bougainville.
0: By mid-1944, American-led Allied forces had largely wrested control of Bougainville from the Japanese, marking the beginning of the end of the Solomon Islands campaign. The Allies in the South Pacific could finally set their sights on retaking the Philippines. The island hopping strategy was working, but it had also come at a horrendous cost.
4: So although some people have criticized MacArthur, saying we we really didn't need to go into the Philippines just yet, and it was maybe too much of a diversion of resources for us. Well, it was even a greater diversion of resources for the Japanese. So was it the, the best move? I, I don't know. I mean, historians are still debating that. I mean, the Marines, U.S. Marine Corps, paid a, a, a tremendous price. They lost a lot, a lot of Marines along the way.
0: While Jim Spencer was engaged in combat in the Solomon Islands, two of our other veterans, Pete Simon and John Andrick, both of whom had been assigned to armored tank units bound for the European theater were being prepared to cross the Atlantic.
3: I ended up in what they call a 610 Tank Destroyer Battalion. And so they figured that since I knew something about the tanks, that they were going to put me in a tank and use me as a driver. That was with Patton's 3rd Army, 28th Corps,
2: 7th Armored Division. 434th Armored Field Artillery. Now that that's a tank
3: we fire, we fired direct fire and indirect fire. We were attached to the 80th Infantry Division and uh, wherever they go, we were supposed to supply the armor.
0: The Allies were preparing to launch their assault on German-held Western Europe, commencing with the D-Day invasion of Normandy on June 6th, 1944.
3: So we boarded the ship and we left New York third day of June in 1944 went on out into the ocean and headed east, headed for Europe. And uh, we were out just out in the middle of the ocean when on um, June the 6th, when the uh, D-Day was in Europe. Now, there's a signal from the flagship. All
1: hands to beaching Station. All hands to beaching Station. That's the signal for our sailors on board this craft to get ready for the landing. And, of course, for the soldiers down in the hose to get ready with their kit along the bottom of the deck and down the ramp as we go to shore. The BBC Home Service. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. The first official news came just after half past nine when Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force issued Communique number 1. This said, under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world.
3: When we was going across the ocean, our boat zigzagged all the way across the ocean to keep away from submarines and that that might want to blow us up, see, because the Germans had a lot of s- submarines out there that was trying to blow up a lot of the ships, but ours didn't get blowed up, so. We ended up over there in good shape. So uh, when we landed in Glasgow, we were lucky to get there. (laughs) And uh, we landed on the 12th day of June, 1944. Got on the Queen Mary, went over into uh, Scotland, Glasgow, and from there to the barracks.
0: Both Simon and Andrick would take part in the Allied charge into France after D-Day.
3: Just before we went over to France, we went on down to Wales to practice our guns to make sure that the, that the new equipment was good and so They have uh, targets out there in the ocean and uh, we fired at these targets to make sure that the guns were lined up with the sights and everything. And then across the channel and to Utah Beach. Shortly after that, we headed out and went to northern France.
4: After the, the D-Day Normandy invasion, they, they captured the beach and then they're moving inland. And that's when we have the major land battles in Europe that most Americans will know.
0: In part two of this three-part episode, we'll follow our veterans as they fight their way further into the European and Pacific theaters and the Allies begin to close in on Nazi Germany and the Empire of Japan. Archival Encounters is produced by the Center for Archival Collections at Bowling Green State University Libraries. Special thanks to our featured guest, Dr. Walter Grunden of the BGSU Department of History, and to Marco Mendoza of the BGSU School of Media and Communication for his assistance with audio production. Additional credits are available in our show notes. To access the entirety of the History 303 Oral History Collection, And to learn more about the Center for Archival Collections, visit our website at bgsu.edu slash library slash CAC.